you would, take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. Again, turning our attention to verses 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Feels like everywhere we turn, we face those that would want to conform us. In other words, just about every avenue of life, wherever we may find ourselves, there's someone or there is something in place that, that seems like it, it wants me to do their thing. Pressures all around us to conform. Now, some of these pressures are not bad. Hereafter, a little while, I won't say how long, will be done, right? And then you all will leave here and you'll go out on the road. It's probably helpful if all of us conform to those rules, right? Makes it a lot easier to get from here to there. It'd make it a lot easier if some of you would stay out of the left-hand lane for me, all right? But nonetheless, okay, so the rules, rules in this case are helpful, There could be a number of examples like that, where conformity is indeed a positive thing. Really, in a sense, what we're doing here today is a bit of a positive type of conformity, meaning we've gathered in this particular church, and it is a particular kind of church. There's methodology and philosophy and theology that I hope and pray is fairly common to us all. There are particular values and priorities, um, commitments, and so in a sense we have conformed to these things, and and it brings a sense of comfort to us, that the people have gathered together with these kinds of similar principles and values and worldview. Of course, then there are other forms of conformity, perhaps even what you think of when I use the word conformity, ways in which they, whoever they are, right? The ways they are trying to conform us. I think of marketing. What is marketing but an attempt at mass conformity, right? I mean, the person producing some kind of product, whether it be a, you know, a car or clothing or some piece of technology, whatever it is, they don't want you as an individual, they want, southern word, right? They want y'all, right? They want, they want all of us. And this is the irony. How much advertising has this kind of feel? You need to buy this car, wear these clothes, you need to get this kind of technology so that you can be you, so that you can be an individual, right? So that you can be yourself. Just like the rest of the five million people, we would like to buy the exact same thing, conformity. Then there is the conformity of what I would call popular opinion. We are often told that there are certain movies we should watch or books we should read, 
music we should listen to, and what is a fundamental reason why? Because everybody else likes it. It's an Academy Award winner. It is a bestseller. It's the top of the charts. These are all attempts to conform us. Again, ironically enough, even those folks who pride themselves in being nonconformist are probably a part of a group of people who are exactly like them, right? Dress like them, talk like them, believe like them. Quite frankly, if you out there think you are the only one just like you, then you are the Unabomber, all right? In other words, there, there's something way out there. There's, some, there's a big problem if you are just all by yourself and the only one. No, conformity is a reality. We find this. We find these pressures to form and fashion us, to form us mentally and in heart and in emotion, and then to form our actions. And, of course, some of these can be downright dangerous. This, for sure, is what Paul has in mind in Romans chapter 12. More often than not, any kind of language that sounds like this in the Bible is probably talking about that which is dangerous. The truth is... There is a particular kind of conformity that as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to guard ourselves against with all diligence. I would love to be able to tell you that the moment you accepted Christ as your Savior, the moment the gospel produced in you life and salvation and fellowship with God, I would love to tell you at that moment you suddenly were inoculated from any other form of sin and temptation. But that's not reality, is it? Now we recognize at every turn, we don't even have to go out our door, it happens before we even get there, that there are attempts to conform us, to press us back into an image which we are trying to break free from. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul addresses this issue. This is perhaps the next issue that Paul addresses. These two verses being fundamental to the rest of the book, and and though, though we are spending quite a bit of time on it, In other words, two verses, this is my third sermon, and there will be a fourth one, all right? Okay? Just going to tell you. So let that settle, all right? Let that settle in on you, because that's going to happen. There'll be another one on this same text. But here's why this is critical. One, because the text is worth it, and what I mean by that is not that other texts aren't, but these verses are summation verses, application verses, foundational verses. I mean, it really serves as a critical point in the entirety of the book of Romans because in these two verses, Paul in essence summarizes for us what the gospel should look like when brought to bear on our lives. You want to know what a Christian should look like? Verses 1 and 2 give it to you in sum, in simple, right? But that is it. Nonetheless, this is it. This is what the gospel demands of me. Now, Paul's going to flesh this out. The next several chapters are going to add some details to what is the basic outline of Romans 12, 1 and 2. So it serves as that kind of essential foundational text. But another reason why I think it's wise is we just take our time, unpack it. Because for a lot of folks, this is really familiar. 
I'd be shocked if there's anyone in this room who, upon hearing me read that just now, thought, I've never heard those words before. Or, three weeks ago, the first time I started preaching on it, you thought, man, that's in the Bible? I had no idea. Some of you could repeat it without even looking at the text. And then some of you could even get the gist of it. Maybe you don't have it all memorized, but the idea could be locked in your mind. This is a familiar text. And so because of that, we can skip over it. Maybe in your Bible, you already got it outlined. And so you just assume, right? You got it underlined. I've got this. I know this one. Let's, let's move along. That's the very reason why we just need to stop and let it settle. So I think as we noted even last week, these words are not easy. These words fly in the face of what is the Christian experience for a lot of believers today. These words stand in contradiction, in opposition to this idea that I I just go about living my life however I want to. I'm covered by God's grace. I've been saved. And so I can just be this big, beautiful, broken mess. And it doesn't matter what sin I engaged in because grace covers me. That's in there in the first 11 chapters somewhere, right? And so these verses, though, force us to see the the wholeness of the gospel. That there is not only this understanding of how we get saved, but then the demands of it. And so we've been taking a look at these verses, how Paul then describes for us what is the natural outgrowth, consequence of the work of the gospel in my heart and mind. And that is, again, in simple, in foundation, in summation of sorts, the gospel demands everything from me. I I am to yield my life wholly devoted. As we've said along the way, there should be no square inch of my life where God has not stamped sovereign grace on top of it. No inch of it should be left free from what is His grand design. I understand we won't do this perfectly. We are in the process of sanctification. Nonetheless, this is the walk of the Christian life. And so we've been looking then at what does that look like to live that kind of wholly devoted life. We've looked at two qualities of it thus far. Holy, fully devoted life understands God's mercy. In other words, it's, this, is, this is foundational. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And so all that I do as a result of the gospel, flows from God's mercy. It is what God has done for me and to me that even enables me to do this. And then last week we looked at number two, and that is sacrifice. A devoted life understands sacrifice. That's really probably Paul's primary phrase in this text. Present your bodies a sacrifice to God. Offer it formally as an act of worship. You, you, you offer the entirety of yourself, your body, as a sacrifice. You're not giving something up. You are giving something over. It, it is a yielding, again, of every square inch of my life. Every role, every responsibility, every expectation should have superimposed upon it the atoning work of Christ and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so, I, so I yield as a sacrifice. And Paul described that for us as living... Holy, acceptable, and reasonable. So let's look now at number three. The third, I think, understanding of a devoted life is that a devoted life understands separation. 
Now, as we get to verse 2, you note that the verse begins with, and. That's right. You can make a point off of the word and. Yes, it is that important because every word is inspired by God and he doesn't do flippant, right? God doesn't do convenient, easy, simple, necessarily. In other words, God does what God does. It's always intentional and appropriate. So the word and is important because that means what follows is a natural progression, perhaps a a more complete understanding of what he just said. It, it, it is connecting to it. So here's what we are to be. We are to be a sacrifice yielded unto God that is living and holy and acceptable, and that is a reasonable act. And, and so let's fill that out. And so Paul gives two commands in verse 2, a negative command and a positive command. He tells me not what, what I shouldn't do, and he tells me what I should do. And in in a sense, it looks really straightforward. Look again there in verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So again, to fill out, what does it look like to be that living, holy, uh, acceptable, and reasonable sacrifice before God? It, It is a life that actively and intentionally resists the conforming powers of the world while at the same time seeks to engage in those actions of the mind that then transform us increasingly into greater examples of Christ-likeness. So again, these are the two commands. A negative command, what not to do, and a positive command, what we should be doing. So so let's let's take a look then at at that one. The first phrase, because that's where the, the point comes from. I think Paul's then fundamental concern here, that as a living sacrifice, part of what I am seeing myself do is in relation to the rest of the world. And what should that be? Do not be conformed to this world. The word world might also have the word age. In other words, the idea being the principles and ideology and priorities and values and actions that would be consistent with this which is unredeemed. That's what he means by, do not be conformed to this world, to that which is still under the curse, to that which is still indicative of the brokenness of sin and rebellion. Now, most translations, I think, read just like this. New King James, New American Standard, ESV, the NIV offers a bit of interpretation to us, and they're not off, it's just that's always the concern. I'm not going to be snarky about the NIV, other than they kind of take it a step further, all right? And they say, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. That's really not a bad way of stating it. You see, when we read these words, when we read the word conformed and transformed, we, kind of, we might think in our mind, oh, these must be similar terms. They're not. I mean, they end with the fun little same phrase, right? So it sounds poetic and preachers might even would do what we call backwards alliteration. Right? We don't alliterate on the front end. Sometimes we do. We give you all P's or all R's or all C's. Those are the easiest ones, by the way, to alliterate for whatever reason, okay? Just so you know. 
But then the back end, you can use the same words like, like shun, right? We could do all kinds of shuns if we wanted to, or we could do that. Conformed, transformed, performed, reformed. All right, okay, so there's all ways that you... That could be a sermon outline. I don't have a text for it, but that could be, all right, a sermon outline. Some of you are thinking, yeah, let's hear that one. All right, but we're not going to. But these two words, conformed and transformed, are not the same They speak to two different kinds of works, and here's the fundamental distinction. One is an outward, external work, and one is an inward, internal work. Understand, Paul's focus here is not on unbelievers. When he says, do not be conformed to the world, do not be externally influenced, don't allow your actions, your ideas, your principles, your priorities... Don't, don't allow the way in which you interact with the world around you to be that which conforms to their way of doing things. Instead, as really as we'll flesh out next week, there's an internal work of the Spirit with which I cooperate. This transforming work of the gospel that remakes me from the inside out. So understand, he's not talking to lost people. Verse 2 is not about unbelievers. Unbelievers cannot be conformed to the the world because they already are of the world. There's nothing to be conformed to. All of those who are not in Christ are of the world. These are the biblical distinctions of all of humanity. So he's, he's saying this specifically to believers, and it's a warning to us that as a believer, I could be pressed or shaped. The word conformed, that's, that's what it means. It, it means to press or to shape, to make into a particular pattern. If you were to look at the Greek word, you, would, you might even see in it the word scheme or schematic. It may, it may shock you to know this, but just as God has a design for you, we saw it in Romans chapter 8, God's design for you is that he's, he's working all things together that you might be formed and fashioned into the image of Christ. The world has an image for you too. The world has a schematic. The world has a plan. The world has a desire, has a design for you. And everything about this world is designed to form and fashion you into that. Again, the word being this kind of mold that you'd be fit into. When I, when I read kind of the, the language behind that and, and the descriptions, I thought of a few things. I thought, I thought of jello molds. Do people use jello molds anymore today, right? Some, sometimes, okay, sometimes, but you, some of you know what I'm talking about, right? This was, this was a big deal. It was a big deal right after jello became a big deal. And so these molds were made so you can make all kinds of fun little things, right? I mean, you can make there are molds out there where you can make jello into anything, right? I mean, anything that you wanted. You can craft and create all kinds of jello molds. And what you do is you'd make up your little mixture, you'd pour it in the mold, it would set, you'd turn it over, and there you go. There's the mold, right? With whatever you put inside of it, okay? That, that would be it. Here's the other thing I thought of, and I'm sorry about this, but it's more food. 
So if you think, well, jello's not a big deal. I mean, I'm not thinking, man, I could really stand to have jello. Man, that'd be good. I mean, maybe you are. I will tell you, you're outside of conformity to the norm, all right, if you are. But if that's you, okay. But I also, I also thought of a bunt pan. Some of you know what a bunt pan is? Some of you think, I don't have any idea. All right, so it's whenever you get a cake that has a hole in it. Well, one of two things have happened. Either you let me have the cake first and I cut it out, all right? Or it, it's a bunt, right? A bunt, a bunt. And these things can be in all kinds. They're very old, by the way. They've been around for a very long time. And there can be all kinds of designs. And it's a cool little thing, right? You pour your batter in there, you know, like a good, rich, not quite done pound cake. You know what I'm talking about? Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, yeah, I've lost some of you for the rest of the time. So you pour that in there. You, you take it out, and then when you flip it over on top, it comes out, and what does it look like? It looks like the thing that you put it in. That's a, probably a pretty good image here. This is exactly what the world hopes to do to you. Christian, I'm talking to you. Christian. Not the lost person out there doing the lost thing. There's no bunt pan for them, all right? They're already in the mold. They've already been formed in fashion. That is what they are. And only the gospel can break them out of that mold and give them a new one, okay? In other words, they're in it. What what the world is wanting to do is now to go after the very thing that it hates about you. And church, make no mistake about it. The world wants nothing of your Christ rightly displayed. It wants nothing of it. Oh, maybe the fake, you know, sappy, hippie Jesus, all right? Now, yes, they love that one, right? The, the robe-wearing, sandal-wearing, I don't know, Buddha-esque, philosophizing, you know, whatever Jesus they come up with these days, yeah, yeah, they, they like that one, the one who's all about just love, right? You even spell it with you, okay? I mean, uh, so the world is all about that Jesus, but they want nothing to do with the biblical Jesus and the biblical gospel and the demands of the gospel on our lives. They want nothing to do with it. So what they will do, what the world wants, is to form you. Take your edge off so that you look more like them. It's exactly what Paul is warning against. And he he is in essence saying this in, in distinction to, what again, what has been the expectation that we would yield ourselves as a living sacrifice, a wholly devoted life unto the gospel. Instead, the world wants to form and fashion us into its own kind of thing. Now, there's another place where this word is used, conformed. It's only used in one other place in the New Testament. I know I I almost never ask you to do this on Sunday morning. If you need to crack your fingers, all right, get, get them. Here we go, okay, all right? Let's turn with me to First Peter. It's not a hard task, okay? First Peter, or if you need to do your, you know, your tippy-tappy typing, all right, uh, if you can do that too. First um, Peter chapter 1, which as you're turning there, I would just, I would just point out, you know, as, as we read this, and if you were to ever read, say, First and Second Peter, it is impossible to read through this. And, and think that Peter didn't read Paul. 
I mean, there's, there's no doubt in my mind. I mean, we know that he did. Because in, in, in his letter, Peter even says, there's some stuff that Paul wrote that's really hard to understand. And I've brought out that text before, which should be really encouraging to us, right? I mean, if Peter, the guy who got the Holy Spirit, right, preached Pentecost. Okay, if that guy reads some of Paul and goes, hmm, that's tricky, all right? So you and I are going to as well, okay? So, but clearly he read Paul. Because I think we see echoes of Paul in what Peter is writing. In particular, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. After he's kind of given us that, uh, that initial part that we just read, which I'm just going to let you think that John and I are that coordinated. All right, so the, we planned that. He planned 1 Peter 1 and knew I was going to go here. All right, that's just how coordinated it is. It didn't happen that way, but I'm going to let you all just think that. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Already you can kind of see this tendency that was even in Paul. Paul would make these grand statements about the gospel, and then, then he'd say, therefore, live like it, right? Live like it. Live accordingly. Then he says this, after saying, so, uh, be, be faithful and, and, and obedient and, and, and focused, Verse 14, as obedient children, and here it is, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So, so Peter uses the exact same word. It's the only other time that it's used, and it's used in the exact same context, the same kind of intent. He's talking to believers, and he's warning believers. He's warning us in a world that desperately doesn't want us to be faithful Christians. He's saying, live as obedient children, not conforming to what you used to do, not conforming to those former lusts, not, not conforming yourselves. And notice the power behind the command. It's the same as, as in Romans. You yourself don't allow this to happen to you. You yourselves don't allow this to happen to you. So let's just go ahead and deal with something right now. I know in our culture, we want to call sin anything other than sin, right? We want to blame it on all kinds of things. We want to try and blame it on our genetics. We want to blame it on our parents. We want to blame it on the culture we live in. Maybe we even want to blame it on the church. Maybe we even want to blame it on a community. We want to find some way that sin is a disease or a shortcoming or something that's not entirely our fault. Understand there is no room for that in the biblical understanding of this. As a believer, if there is sin, it lies squarely on my shoulder. Well, that's not easy. We have to be honest. And this is what Peter is forcing us to do. Don't engage in those things you used to do. Don't be conformed. Don't be pressed back in to that mold you've been broken out of. Instead, just as the one who called you is holy, so you be holy. And when he says holy here, 
The language of holiness is as much about, again, being called out of the world and living in a way that's consistent with that, as opposed to some kind of legalistic uh, set of rules we might think of when we think of holiness. He's really talking about living that life separated unto God. Again, I would argue it's sim- similar imagery to what's going on in Romans 12. I, I am to live my life as a yielded act of worship to God. And so part of that means not conforming to the pattern of this world. I can't, I can't let the world and the ways of the world influence the way I think about things and the way I act but it's going to try and do it at every turn. And, I, and I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a place where I see this happen. And we've talked about this and probably in other contexts, but I, I find myself just deeply burdened by it. I see it happening in, in this very time slot, so to speak. Because there are churches all over this country who believe that they should be crafting a worship service that lost people like to come to. First blush, that may sound right. Yeah. Let's make it attractive for lost people, right? So, so they'll, they'll say things like, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll want to say, well, this, this isn't your grandmother's church. I, you know, I've been telling folks this. I think we're going to make our tagline, this is, this is your grandmother's church. I mean, I mean, your grandmother probably does go here, okay? Some of you are in here. You, yes. I don't know. I like my grandmother. I don't know why that's such a bad thing, okay? Why is that a problem? They'll, 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 they'll say things like this, and, and, and so the service becomes, the service becomes the trappings of the world with Jesus added on to it. I've even known of some churches that will play in the midst of what they call worship services, Sunday morning, so-called worship services, where so-called the Word is going to be preached. And and they will include in those services singing secular songs. Now, I'm not telling you you can't listen to secular music, but I can tell you we won't sing it in here as if it is some kind of act in which God will be pleased. Some of these songs being just as worldly and ungodly as you can imagine. Hey, but a lost person may come in and that'll make them feel comfortable. Now, this may not surprise you, church, but you should know when I wake up on Sunday mornings and I step in this pulpit, my number one thought is, well, will a lost person be happy with what I say today? That is not. In fact, my first thought is not, will you be happy with what I say today? And quite frankly, God has not told me, well, Scott, I want you to be happy with what I say, all right? In other words, this is not a part of the program. God intends for His people to come together for what is a a one purpose, a singular purpose, that He would be glorified and exalted. Listen, church, to steal a line from Sarah Palin, you can put lipstick on a pig, but you still don't want to kiss it, all right? So you can take a worldly service and throw Jesus on it, but you still don't want it. It's not that which honors God. So what we need to do is make sure we avoid what is the pressure of the world to make us like them. And church, this is happening because we are giving up ground all along the way, right? We are giving up ground all along the way. So much so, now we're even being told we need to redefine what family means. We need to even redefine what gender means. We need to create safe space. 
Safe spaces. I don't even know, I don't even know what that means, okay? I don't know. That's how f- way out of touch I am with these things. I don't even really know what that means. I don't think that's our call. Now understand, I think we should be friendly, kind. If there's somebody sitting around you you don't recognize, tabernacle folks, introduce yourself, right? And if you end up introducing yourself to somebody who's been a member for many, many years, and this is the first time you've seen them, they should probably feel bad about that, okay? All right, in other words, that okay, so just let that settle. So you served a purpose then as well too, okay? So yes, we should be friendly, we should be kind, we should be gracious, but we, are, we cannot bend to the pressure. Because the world just needs a little, just a little crack. Just give me a little opening. As the statement goes, just let me get my foot in the door. That's why they call it a slippery slope, right? Once you go down it, it's hard to make your way back up. So church, we need to be on guard against this. We need to be on guard against what is the conforming powers of the world. Now, obviously, there are overt ways this happens, and we, we would recognize this, right? We recognize there are ways the world wants us to be conformed to their pattern on, on things like, of course, like sexual ethics, all right? We know they, they want us to be conformed to a certain way. How we view salvation, they want us to be conformed to a certain way. And then we can even see the, the clear, overt forms of worldliness that I would associate with like greed and lying and malice and anger. You know, these things that, say, Galatians 5 describes as the fruit of the flesh as opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. But then there are more covert ways of the world, right? Quite frankly, you and I should probably be more on guard, or at least as on guard, about those. I I read an article by a guy named Tim Challies, a pastor, uh, author, and uh, I would commend him to you, C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S.com. All right, Challies.com, and you can find a lot of stuff that he's written. You can listen to sermons. Uh, Again, I, I... that doesn't mean there aren't some things I disagree with. In fact, I know that there are. But he, I would, shocker, right? Okay, but I, I know uh, he would be well worth your time. He wrote an, an article on this very issue, on this very text, Romans 12, 2, which I think he gave very helpful instruction. He identified what would be four subtle ways the world tries to conform us. He, he referenced the potential for our entertainment to be a subtle way the world might try and conform us. So, so the, think, think media, think the stuff that we see, the stuff that we read, the stuff that we hear. To what degree are we consuming that stuff? It'll be forming in our minds and hearts. He warned about the conforming power of education about our allowing ourselves just to fall in lock, stock, and barrel to those who want to tell us how we should think and believe. He also warned against the conforming powers of friends. I really found this to be quite instructive. This may offend some, but if your most formative relationships are with lost people, You are doing it wrong. 
I'm not saying you can't have relationships with lost people, and I'm not suggesting they cannot offer sometimes good advice. I just mean if my most formative, if I'm going again and again and again to an unbeliever for advice, for direction, for insight on whatever, that more often than not is going to be a world-conforming activity. And then finally, he warned about apathy. So education, entertainment, friendship, and apathy, meaning we just neglect the practices that form and fashion us into Christ-likeness. We neglect the gathering of God's people. We neglect true worship. We, we neglect the spiritual disciplines, prayer, Bible study. We, we neglect these things. What's interesting is that I think Romans 12 gives us an either-or setup. Either it's conformity or it's transformation. I'm either being conformed or I'm being transformed. And there's, no, there's no middle ground here. So to what degree are these things forming and fashioning us? And this, here's how he ended the article. Worldliness is like gravity. Always there. Always pushing down on you. Always exerting its influence on you. As a Christian, you are charged with resisting it day by day. You must and you can. You must because your spiritual life and health depend on it. You can because you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, whose joy is to transform you by the Word of God into the image of the Son of God. Do not be conformed to this world. So what is the solution, by the way? All right, so we're not going to get to it this morning, all right? Next week, though, we will. And we will finish verse 2. Woo! All right. We're well on our way. Plan is to finish Romans in 2021. All right, so we'll get there. No, I'm just kidding. It'll be way somewhat shorter than that. But Paul will give us then the solution to this. What, what is it that we do to, to keep the conforming pressure? We are to be transformed. In other words, to, to resist what is the outward external pressure to be shaped after worldly values and priorities, we submit ourselves to the ongoing sanctifying work of the Spirit, to transformation that comes by the renewal of the mind, so that internally... There are ideals and principles and values and work that is going on that then, instead of being pressed into, it is pressed out of us. So that then my actions become formed and fashioned, not by what these external pressures are, but the internal work of the Spirit of God working in cooperation with the Word of God as a result of His gospel. So this, this, is, this is what we will what we will turn to next week. But for now, perhaps what we do is we just take an inventory of our own lives and hearts. Maybe even continuing from what we, what we did last week, thinking about what does it mean to live a life wholly devoted to the Lord, except now asking a secondary question. Are there ways in which I've allowed the corrupting influence of the world to get a foot in the door? Now, before you're worried, well, wouldn't that lead to legalism? We'll talk about that next week. We'll do it next week, all right? I don't think it does. 
And I'm not suggesting you can't ever watch a movie or listen to a song that doesn't have Jesus in it or not watch, you know, watch television, you know, whatever the case may be. It, it, it is not that. But we also shouldn't let that, that sometimes we can do those things, then meanwhile it's just a free-for-all, and I don't want any expectations placed on me whatsoever. That's just not the gospel. Of course the gospel places expectations on me. Not expectations that save me, but what it looks like then to live that kind of transformed life. And so we ask ourselves, to what degree are we allowing the forms, the molds, the schemes, the patterns, the plans of the world, to, to, to what degree are we allowing that to form us? And perhaps you need to confess that to the Lord. Maybe there are ways in which you have not yielded then to God as a living sacrifice. I'd encourage you to do that this morning. We're going we're to sing the song that I believe John just and the choir sang for us. What a, what a profound offering we, we make as we sing these words, asking that Christ would be glorified, giving ourselves to this, that Christ would be glorified in every square inch of our lives. Of course, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, that is my appeal to you, that you would submit to Jesus Christ, that you would confess you are a sinner, confess Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, that you ask God to forgive you based on what Christ has done, that you yield to what would be the work of the Spirit to give you life and to give you life in Christ. If you've never done that, I'll be down front. I'll be here after the service is over if you want some more time to talk about it. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I implore you to do that. But believer, if you'd say, no, I, I've done that, I, I ask you, are, are you living a life, again, that is yielded every square inch to God and His purposes for you? Let's stand and I'll pray. And after I pray, we'll sing together. Father God, we do thank You for the gathering of Your people We thank you for the opportunity to come under your word, and we pray that that word would be brought to bear on our lives, that we might live in faithfulness and obedience before you. We do thank you for the good work of the gospel, a work that is not our own, that involves none of our own power, but all of yours. And we thank you that now, as believers in Christ, we can live in faith and obedience to you. May we do so, that you would indeed be glorified in all things through us. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.